Robin Rutledge examines the faith of Israel and the interplay of sin, judgment, and hope in their spiritual understanding of nationhood. Despite escalating sinfulness and a growing deafness to God's calls for repentance, ancient Israel clung to the belief that they would one day reclaim their former glory under God's kingdom, an optimistic perspective fueled by their faith in God. According to the pre-exilic prophets, the key to hope lay beyond the landscape of divine judgment. Experience of the exile was a vital turning point, leading the Israelites to perceive it as God's judgment brought upon them because of their transgressions. This was a crisis imbued with a sense of divine purpose and ultimately hope. Also, not merely a punitive measure, the exile was seen as a potential catalyst for future blessings, opening avenues of spiritual growth and renewal. Thus, while the exile signified a crisis, triggered by the Israelites' departure from God's ways, it also represented an opportunity for rebirth and restoration, thereby imbuing the Israelites' understanding of their spiritual journey with a sense of hope. Routledge emphasizes how this faith narrative of crisis and hope played a crucial role in shaping Israel's understanding of sin, judgment, and redemption. It accentuated the idea that despite the suffering triggered by disobedience, restoration and renewal remained possible. This was an inherent part of God's divine plan, wherein His judgment was intricately linked with hope for a restored future. This faith sustained Israel's optimism and served as an inspiration during challenging times. In short, Rutledge's exploration affirms how faith allowed the Israelites to perceive even the darkest moments of exile as part of God's corrective plan, leading to renewals and blessings. This intertwining of crisis and hope formed a fundamental element of Israel's spiritual narrative. Moreover, Routledge discusses the theology behind interpreting the history of Israel and Judah in the Bible, specifically in the books of Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings. These discussions are based on the Deuteronomistic history principle, which argues that obedience to God leads to blessings and prosperity, while disobedience leads to defeat and exile from the promised land. This notion is used to explain the historical events of Israel's exile and ultimate defeat in 722-721 BC and Judah's exile and defeat in 587 BC. In the Book of Kings, this principle is further illustrated by the judgment of rulers based on God's view of their actions rather than their achievements. For example, the defeat of Israel by the Assyrians is rationalized in terms of Israel's consistent disobedience and failure to heed God's warnings. According to Rutledge, this demonstrates how God's word and commandments are integral to understanding the historical events of salvation as his previously forewarned severe judgments are enforced in response to disobedience. However, an important aspect of the Deuteronomistic history is God's long-suffering and patience. The text asserts how God refrained from complete judgment when the disobedience of his people indicated otherwise. This is seen when God holds back from punishing Solomon's idolatry immediately. Even after the fall of Jerusalem, the writer's decision to end on a hopeful note rather than on judgment indicates that God's punitive actions are not His final judgments. The release of the last king, Jehoiakim, from prison, and his subsequent honor at the Babylonian king's table, exemplify how God's judgment on His people and monarchy wasn't His final say. Furthermore, Routledge explores the theme of impending judgment due to apostasy in the messages of the pre-exilic prophets. Amos, for instance, denounced the social sins of the northern kingdom, such as the mistreatment of the poor and the perversion of justice, predicting these would lead to catastrophe. Hosea expressed similar sentiments, his criticism centered on religious sins such as idolatry and the lack of faithfulness to Yahweh required by their covenant. Both prophets warned of the judgment that would descend as a result. Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel shared the same message of impending judgment, although they directed it at the southern kingdom. In addition, Amos warned against the false security the Israelites had in their selection by God, believing it assured their future safety and removed the obligation to repent. He decried the sinfulness of both Israel and its traditional enemies, affirming that all were equally deserving of divine punishment. 
This assertion directly challenged Israel's confidence in its special status. Further, Rotledge drew attention to the prevalent misconception around the Day of the Lord within Israel. Rather than being a time of triumph, the prophets Amos and Joel warned it would be a day of defeat and judgment. The consistent theme within the messages of the pre-exilic prophets was that of a violated special relationship with God. Rutledge refers to God viewing Israel as his bride, drawing links between idol worship and adultery. The prophets describe Israel as having failed to meet its covenant obligations, with many passages presenting the imagery of God initiating a lawsuit against the nation. For Jeremiah, the focus was on the conditional nature of God's blessing and the curse that followed disobedience. According to the prophets, Israel was a nation that had failed, and a covenant that was violated, although this was only part of the broader narrative. Besides, Rotledge's work delves into the prophetic writings of the Bible, focusing on the themes of judgment and hope. He looks at several verses across different books, such as Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Hosea, and Amos, that convey these themes. Routledge contends that although some scholars believe hopeful messages emerged primarily during the Babylonian exile, there is solid reasoning to consider hope as an integral part of the original prophecies. He views the prophets as providing an explanation for Israel's defeat and exile, resulting from the nation's unfaithfulness and consistent rebellion against spiritual calls for repentance. According to Routledge, prophets viewed the exile as both divine judgment against sin and the tool God used to initiate a fresh start for His people. What appeared as a national disaster was actually a theological necessity, with the country needing to be metaphorically destroyed before it could be repurposed and renewed. Routledge views the central theme of the prophetic books as Israel's death, through defeat and exile, and rebirth, through return from exile, resettlement, and national recovery. The prophetic writings anticipated the termination of the initial covenant due to judgment, yet predicted a revival for Israel, whereby it would once again become God's chosen people. This re-electing of Israel and the founding of a new covenant signified the fulfillment of ancient covenant promises after passing through judgment and paving the way for a fresh start. Additionally, in the Old Testament, the term remnant is often used to refer to those who survive a crisis. Even in the face of wide national idolatry, God preserved a faithful remnant, exemplified by those who remained loyal during the Baal worship under Ahab and Jezebel. Also, the term was used to describe the people of Judah who survived following the destruction of the northern kingdom in the Assyrian invasion. The remnant, in a theological context, refers to the minority of the population who, after divine judgment due to the faithlessness of the nation, turn back to God and receive salvation. These crises served a pedagogical function, disciplining and refining the people to produce a refined remnant. Despite the spiritual and moral decay of Jerusalem, prophesied judgment served to prepare the path for salvation. The faithful remnant who survived the judgment to experience God's blessings were often associated with those who would return from exile in Babylon, and the returning exiles saw themselves as the surviving remnant. However, the return did not live up to the people's expectations, as old sins re-emerged and the sought-after inner renewal did not occur. Thus, the idea of the faithful remnant became seen as a future hope. Isaiah added another layer to the concept by naming his son Sher Jashub, meaning, a remnant will return. This could be interpreted as a warning of devastating population loss, or as a promise that the destruction would not be complete. It is a concept that requires faith from the people and confronts them with a choice. To experience the blessings of the coming age, one must turn to God and put their trust in Him. Moreover, Routledge discusses the tension between the Sinaitic and Davidic covenants in the Old Testament, as well as their significance to Israel's faith. The Sinaitic covenant highlighted God's election of Israel and His promises to her, while the Davidic covenant indicated the righteous commandments that must be followed to maintain the covenantal bond. Furthermore, the Davidic covenant provided a theological explanation for Israel's continued status as God's chosen people, even when they broke the Sinaitic covenant. 
The balance between these two theological perspectives was disrupted in the time of Jeremiah, as Jerusalem's inhabitants gained a false sense of security due to God's unconditional promises to David and the perceived divine protection of Zion. Jeremiah, grounded in Sinaitic covenant theology, preached a message of repentance and impending doom due to the violation of the Sinaitic covenant. After the fall of Jerusalem in 587 BC, a chastened remnant viewed themselves as the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy and looked forward to restoration. Jeremiah, however, rejected this view and claimed that the devastation and exile were part of God's plan. Despite the impending judgment, Jeremiah remained hopeful in God's promises, foreseeing a new and eternal covenant that God would forge with his people in exile. This new covenant, prophesied in Jeremiah 31, bridges the demands of the covenant, divine judgment, and God's unwavering promises by means of divine grace. In addition, the new covenant is a realization of the Sinaitic Old Covenant. This is gleaned from Jeremiah 31, which draws numerous parallels to the Exodus, depicting the return from exile as a second wilderness experience. Just like God delivered his people from Egypt and claimed them as his own, promising deliverance, restoration, and a new covenant, he does so again in a similar situation. The relationship between God and Israel is likened to that between a husband and a wife, reflecting back to Sinai and the honeymoon period in the desert. Drawing from personal domestic troubles, Hosea likens the Sinai covenant to a strained marriage bond between God and Israel. However, God's objective isn't to reject Israel but to reconcile with her, leading to a God-Israel reunion in the desert. This moment of reconciliation marks a fresh start ushering in a new covenant that vastly differs from the Sinai covenant, resulting in an everlasting marriage. Echoing this renewal and indicating God's willingness to forgive and restore his relationship with his people, the Valley of Achor, once a site of failure and judgment, will be renamed as the Door of Hope. Such shift, restoration, and realignment maintain God's unwavering commitment to his people, transcending any past failures and delinquency, ultimately ensuring an enduring marriage between God and His people. Hence, the New Covenant is not a radical departure, but rather a fulfillment and continuation of the Old, marked by God's relentless commitment and grace towards His people, offering hope and restoration in the midst of judgment and failure. Further, Rutledge examines the differences between the Old Sinaitic Covenant and the New Covenant revealed by the prophet Jeremiah. One essential characteristic of the New Covenant is its inherent internal law, which results in an inward renewal and is then written on the hearts of the people. This is remarkably different from the external legalistic nature of the Old Covenant, which failed due to the people's hardened and unreceptive hearts. The New Covenant promises a transformation of the heart leading to obedience and fulfillment of the covenant relationship that God sought with Abraham and at Sinai. In this relationship, God is their God, and they are His people. Besides, this renewed covenant is everlasting, as God did everything necessary for its sustainability. It creates a new human nature by a miraculous transformation, enabled by the indwelling of the Spirit, which in turn empowers people to live according to God's decrees and laws. Thus, this new covenant bears the mark of God's pledge to fulfill His covenant ideal. What further distinguishes this new covenant from the old is that it negates human mediation, allowing everyone direct access to God and enabling personal, intimate fellowship with Him. This accord aligns with the gift of the Spirit, which was previously bestowed only on certain individuals, but now will be imparted to all people in the era of salvation. Additionally, the new covenant ensures divine forgiveness for the sins of the people which previously damaged their relationship with God. This forgiveness, mirroring God's continued willingness to forgive, implies a fresh start where God reaffirms past failures and betrayals and renews His relationship with His people, promising a restored and righteous bond with them. Next, eschatology, in Jewish apocalyptic and New Testament writings, is about the end of history, the cosmos, and the current world order, heralding an eternity of salvation. This view of eschatology, supported by Moinkel, covers teachings about the last things, 
with each one including a certain pattern of history and the unprecedented shift from one reality to another. This perspective is sparse in the Old Testament. Clements observes that this end is typically seen as lying beyond history's limits. While the Old Testament predicts a time where God's intentions for His people and the world will come to pass, it's still expected within history and therefore doesn't align with the classical eschatological understanding. Therefore, a broader definition of Old Testament eschatology is suggested. A significant concept in eschatology is the thought of two eras, the present age and the forthcoming one. Developed in later apocalyptic writings, it prevails in the Old Testament as well. Prophets await God's significant interference in human history, bringing earth-shattering transformation. The promises of this new age serve as the basis for an expanded definition of Old Testament eschatology that contains all elements related to the new world system. Also, the scholars explored the development of eschatology, the study of end times or final things in the Old Testament. In particular, she points out the prophecies which look towards a time post-judgment, where God will be seen delivering and restoring His people, ushering in a new age of salvation and peace. Moreover, this era is characterized by God's reign established over the entire earth. This eschatological hope, according to Rutledge, becomes most clearly visible in the prophetic writings dating from the 8th century BC. However, its deep-rooted origins lay in Israel's covenant faith. The scholar identifies three overlapping key themes believed to have aided the evolution of Old Testament eschatology. The first of these themes is the Day of the Lord. It refers to an apocalyptic time of divine judgment and intervention, a notion that appears frequently throughout the Old Testament. Second, Rutledge brings attention to the motif of God's battle with chaos, known as Chaos Kampf a theme which depicts God as creating order from chaos and often represents the struggle between good and evil. Furthermore, following this, the Davidic traditions, particularly those surrounding the city of Zion, are seen as crucial in the literature's eschatological narrative. In summary, Rutledge engages with the notion of eschatology in the Old Testament and reiterates the key themes that may have shaped its progression, including the Day of the Lord, the struggle between chaos and order, and Davidic traditions. These themes all reflect the hope for a salvific future, where God's sovereign rule is established over the world, following a time of divine judgment. In addition, the day of the Lord, mentioned in Amos 5.18, is understood to be established by the 8th century BC. It marks the ultimate victory of God over His adversaries to reinforce His reign. According to Moenkel, this day is associated with an annual enthronement festival, celebrating God's recurrent victory against chaos and His commitment to His people. Eventually, the theme was reused by Deutero Isaiah following Jerusalem's downfall. However, its deliverance was envisaged far in the future. It is still debated whether such an enthronement festival defined by Moenkel ever transpired. A feasible alternative would be an annual commemoration of Yahweh's reign, potentially recalling when the Ark was brought to Jerusalem. Such an occasion would certainly revisit God's acts for His people and forecast His future triumph and glorious return. Further, this would have sustained hope during national disruptions. The day could be correlated with battles mentioned in the history of the Exodus and conquest, where God fought for His people. Besides, the day of the Lord is connected with descriptions of divine theophany, the manifestation of God in intense power, usually accompanied by natural upheaval. Initially, these elements would likely allude to the hope of release from a specific threat, rooted in trust that God would continue to fight for His people. Over time, this hope evolved into an eschatological belief that God would ultimately nullify every threat to establish a peaceful, prosperous era. By the 8th century, it was likely perceived that dramatic divine intervention would be necessary to secure Israel's national future. Additionally, Rutledge explores the concept of chaos kampf, a theme deeply connected with Yahweh's self-revelation, or theophany. The term refers to the primeval battle between a divine hero and chaos, often represented as a monstrous entity, resulting in creation. Routledge debates that this theme was initially associated with God's triumph over Israel's political enemies and was then extended to represent a future cosmic battle. 
Here, Yahweh defeats all that is in opposition to him and ushers in a new creation. This reflects the ancient belief that the original battle leading to creation and the defeat of chaotic and rebellious forces will recur in the final vanquishing of evil and the establishment of God's new world order. This fundamental narrative underpins the structure of cosmic history. It's a cycle where God bends chaos into order, then renews it again when disorder arises. This victory symbolizes God's supreme authority over all aspects of life, both material and spiritual. For believers, the expectation of a divine renewal and cosmic fight against evil potentially offers a source of hope and reassurance. God's inevitable victory over chaos repeats His unwavering commitment to order and harmony. Despite seeming disorder in the world, chaos is part of the divine plan, one which will ultimately result in a new creation under God's perfect rule. Overall, Rutledge's discussion of Chaos Kampf provides a deeper understanding of the divine's relationship with the universe and the human struggle between order and chaos. His analysis underlines the theological significance of this narrative in understanding God's intentions and actions in the world. Next, the Zion tradition linked to the city of Jerusalem formed a basis for national hope among the Jewish people. This tradition is anchored in three primary elements. Firstly, Zion, deemed as the successor to Sinai, is considered the dwelling place of God. Secondly, it is the appointed place from which God reigns, accompanied by His chosen King. Thirdly, Zion is believed to receive unique protection and aid from God due to its significance. The tradition is prominent in biblical passages, often containing descriptions of God's defense of Jerusalem against hostile nations. This theme has bolstered confidence during various crises, including Jerusalem's confrontation with the Assyrians. Also, the role of the Davidic king and adopted son of God is vital in the Zion tradition. Selected by God, the king is believed to rule on God's behalf and is promised dominion over the entire world. Moreover, these elements of the tradition may have roots in the narratives of the Exodus and the Day of the Lord. Furthermore, the Zion tradition extends into eschatological future predictions, positing that God will defend His people against nations threatening them. These prophecies often draw upon imagery of natural disasters to illustrate God's intervention. This serves as a demonstration of God's ultimate power and commitment to protecting His chosen people and His city, Jerusalem. While scholars dispute Isaiah's prophetic message and the city's rescue in 701 BC-shaped Zion traditions, it's suggested that this tradition is unlikely to be a mere interpretation of Isaiah's teachings. Instead, it is a broader ideological framework that underscores the divine protection and favor Jerusalem and its people enjoy. In addition, Rutledge discusses the era of salvation and spiritual rebirth in the context of Israel's exile. He emphasizes how the prophets perceived this exile as not just inevitable, but also necessary for the future of the nation. The exile was seen as a kind of death, a purifying event from which a newly refined Israel could emerge. The prophets promised more than just a physical return from exile. They foretold a spiritual and political rebirth for the nation, a resurrection that imbued the exiles with hope. Routledge particularly focuses on the message of Deutero-Isaiah, which shared an optimistic view of God as the orchestrator of history, superior to any other deities whose power would eventually lead to the liberation and justification of His people. The anticipated salvation was likened to a second exodus, marking a new chapter in the nation's life and its relationship with God as well as the world. This new epoch envisioned by God extends to more than just a renewed nation. It foretells the creation of new heavens and a new earth, envisioning a kingdom marked by righteousness and tranquility, where a revitalized Jerusalem will reflect God's glory to the rest of the world. Further, Routledge discusses the concept of the kingdom of God, how it relates to the coming age and its impact on the earth. According to him, God's reign over the whole earth will be established in the forthcoming age, characterized by God's victory over his enemies. Besides, this era will witness the restoration of Israel, especially Jerusalem, and God gathering the scattered exiles as mentioned in several scriptures in the Bible. 
Routledge accentuates that central to this future age will be the spiritual renewal of Jerusalem and its people, leading to its prominence as the center of God's kingdom. Key to understanding this transition is the restoration of the throne of David and the expectation of a peaceful, righteous kingdom under the Davidic Messiah. Many passages in the Bible portray the restoration of Jerusalem in the image of returning to Eden, with specific features such as harmony within nature and an abundance of produce from the land. Additionally, Israel's restoration is likened to a new creation, which suggests a profound transformation and renewal. The expectant image of the future is one of peace, righteousness, and abundant blessings. This future kingdom of God signifies a return to spiritual wholeness, unity, and a state of paradise similar to the Garden of Eden. The coming age will signify the triumph of God's kingdom on earth, the restoration of Israel, and the renewal of a harmonious and bountiful world. Next, the Old Testament, OT, focuses on the certainty of God's kingdom, described in earthly terms. It suggests that it will be established through divine intervention, signaling the end of the current world and the birth of a new era. This transformation is painted through the restoration of Israel politically and the spiritual renewal of the people, resulting in worship of God through ceremonies and sacrifices. Also, the future glory is depicted through the land's fruitfulness and material wealth. The question arises whether these depictions are to be taken literally or symbolically. Some relate these visions of an earthly kingdom with Christ's millennial reign, often associated with a final battle outside Jerusalem and Jerusalem's restoration as Christ's world kingdom center. However, the OT does not contain a two-phase salvation concept. It portrays God's kingdom as eternal with no provision for a temporary earthly kingdom that will be replaced by a heavenly one. The OT uses language and images befitting the original recipients to convey God's future hope for His people. Its future hope is voiced in terms of physical realities like abundant harvests, victory over invaders, freedom, security, and reversal of misfortunes. It employs familiar ideas such as a purified temple or meaningful celebrations, including a final battle against nations, to express the hope of final vindication. Interpreting the OT from a New Testament, NT perspective, ultimately affirms underlying meanings. As the NT reveals more, the vision changes from earthly to spiritual salvation, with Christ's death and resurrection symbolizing the victory over evil. The core principles remain the same, God's triumph over evil, the establishment of God's reign over creation, the vindication of His people, and the advent of a peaceful and prosperous era. The fulfillment of these divine promises might not resemble the OT depictions, but it does not imply that the prophets were wrong or that their hopes failed. Instead, it indicates the promises' realization would be unprecedented and unforeseen. Moreover, Rutledge focuses on the messianic expectation. He explains that the term Messiah does not officially appear in the Old Testament, and when it does, it typically refers to historical figures, not the eschatological figure connected with the kingdom of God. When the Israelite monarchy fell, eschatological hopes emerged for a new order led by a Messiah-like king. Routledge explores various viewpoints. According to Moenkel, the Messiah is an eschatological figure. As per Bright, messianic hope is first seen in the 8th century prophecies of Isaiah. Motier argues that awareness of shortcomings in the monarchy could lead to hopes for a better system even before its fall. Ultimately, Rutledge infers that messianic expectations may have grown in response to political failure and suggests this expectation needed not date solely from after this period. Rutledge discusses the difficulty in the study of the idea of the Messiah due to the lack of direct references in the OT and differing opinions regarding messianic texts. Most consider a passage as messianic if they define it as a precursor to Jesus. However, this risks imposing a messianic interpretation on texts not intended for such. The opposite extreme, according to Moinkel, is to deem a passage as truly messianic only if it was originally intended as eschatological. Routledge concludes that while New Testament writers view Jesus as fulfilling messianic hopes, the OT portrayal of the Messiah remains ambiguous at best. This ambiguity, he suggests, 
partly explains why Jesus did not fit the contemporary Jewish expectations of the Messiah. Furthermore, Israel's expectation of a Messiah has always been intimately tied to King David and the aspiration for a future monarch emanating from David's lineage. This desire asserts hopes for the restoration of the splendor characteristic of David's reign, along with the defensive preservation, salvation, and upcoming elevation of Jerusalem. The pledge made by God to David in 2 Samuel 7, 11b-16, illustrated in conjunction with the construction of the temple and his imminent heir Solomon, is often perceived as the basis for Israel's hope for a Messiah. In addition, the promise alludes to a perpetual line of succession. Prominently, the inadequacy of the historical monarchy highlights the need for a forthcoming perfect ruler. In biblical texts, the liberation of Jehoiakim from prison, 2 Kings 25, 27, 30, suggests that God's commitment to David remains unbroken. However, there appears to be intentional disruption between the worldly line of David and the expected Davidic ruler, as suggested by the instruction to consider Jehoiakim childless, Jeremiah 22.30. Nonetheless, the Davidic line's link to the Messiah remains a prominent theme, reinforcing the idea of a predicted ideal ruler who would uphold the values and glory of King David's reign and protect and elevate Jerusalem. This essence of messianic hope, rooted in the eternal dynastic promise made to David, significantly shaped Jewish faith and expectations. Further, in his interpretation of the prophecy of Isaiah, Routledge articulates the hope for an ideal future ruler, descended from David. Routledge identifies two prominent passages, Isaiah 9, 2-7, suggesting the future king's divinity, and Isaiah 11, 1-9, hinting at a re-emergence after the Davidic monarchy's decline. Routledge indicates that the redemptive theme of an emergent leader from the stump symbolizes a second David who would bring about peace, justice, and righteousness. The use of the term stump of Jesse instead of line of David suggests this second David would restore the glory of the initial Davidic empire. Besides, Routledge examines potential interpretations of the Emmanuel prophecy, Isaiah 7.14, in relation to the Davidic Messiah. It seems the description of the young mother in the verse as a virgin and its application by Matthew to the virgin birth of Jesus encourages such a link. However, controversy arises from translating Alma as virgin, which Routledge identifies as ambiguous, and thus the virgin birth may not be Isaiah's main concern. He maintains this sign of Emmanuel had direct relevance to the crisis Ahaz and Judah were facing and isn't strictly messianic. However, the connection between the Davidic monarchy and Emmanuel could be made if the latter is identified as a royal child. Additionally, Rutledge points out the significance of Psalm 46's refrain, Emmanuel, in the Zion tradition and its relation to God's promise to David. Next, the royal psalms, including Psalms 2, 110, and possibly 72 and 101, have often been linked to the coronation of particular kings. Despite their grandiose verbiage, they have also been interpreted as messianic, suggesting a prophetic element. The lofty expectations presented within these psalms were at best partially fulfilled by the monarchs of both Israel and Judah and even the esteemed King David himself could not completely embody them. This led the populace to perceive the limitations of the monarchy, causing an undertone of aspiration for an epitomic ruler within these hymns, reflecting a desire for a leader who would exemplify all the virtuous attributes of David, and even exceed them. Following the demise of the monarchy, the emphasis of these psalms shifted entirely towards a futuristic vision and the term Messiah or anointed, which was previously attributed to the Davidic king, took on an eschatological connotation, signifying the ultimate end-time savior or deliverer. This paradigm shift in expectation arguably broadened the potential influence and reach of the monarchy, extending from a geographical to a metaphysical realm. Psalm 72, 8, which describes the extent of the king's reign spanning from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth, is referenced in Zechariah 9, 9, 10. This description is typically viewed as a prediction of the Messiah's reign, indicating a prophetic connection between the envisioned ideal king 
and the coming Messiah. As such, this integration of royal and messianic themes evokes an evolving concept of leadership that surpasses ordinary human rule, embodying a potent blend of prophetic hope and longing for a divine ruler. Moreover, in Isaiah 11, one, the messianic king is referred to as a branch from the roots of Jesse. This metaphor suggests life emerging from something that appeared to have no future, specifically the Davidic monarchy. The Messiah would bring life and hope to a nation acquainted with death and despair. Another Hebrew term, Samah, also translated as branch, describes the coming king in various Old Testament passages. The Messiah as Simah is associated with David and linked indirectly to rebuilding the temple, possibly indicating his divinity. Furthermore, the term Simah is connected with the priesthood. Priests, like kings, were anointed leaders and play a role in Israel's messianic expectations. In the book of Jeremiah, the promised Messiah was viewed as the fulfillment of the covenant with David and the covenant with the Levites, signifying a unification of royal and priestly roles. In Zechariah, the branch is associated with the priestly task of removing sin. In addition, in Zechariah, the branch is notably declared as both a priest and a king, unifying the two offices. This unification harks back to King David, who successfully brought the offices of king and priest closer together. The Messiah is predicted to bring full unity to these two offices, fulfilling a long-standing expectation within the Israelite tradition. Further, the reference to the stump of Jesse in Isaiah 11, one suggests that the Messiah will be a future David, which is suggested by Micah 5, Two, where Bethlehem, the birthplace of David, is indicated as the origin of the coming king. Various scriptures provide understanding of a forthcoming Davidic king, who will reunify God's people under his rule and maintain a close relationship with the divine. This future king will be an earthly representative of Yahweh and tend to his people with care. In Ezekiel 34, God declares his intent to shepherd his people and appoints his servant David to act on his behalf. This reflects the transition of the biblical David, who moved from tending his father's flock to shepherding God's flock. Contemporary rulers have been unable to fulfill their responsibilities, implying a need for another David to undertake this role in the future. Zechariah 13. Seven references God's shepherd, but this role isn't directly linked to David. The prophecies of a new Davidic king allude to a figure who will bear the responsibilities and fulfill the calling once undertaken by the biblical David, depicting a close relationship with God and overseeing his earthly realm. The Messiah became known as the second David, reiterating his shepherd-like role in fulfilling God's wishes and caring for his people. Besides, Rotledge explores the dual aspects of Israel's future hope as depicted in the Old Testament. According to Routledge, the OT portrays the Messiah as a descendant of David who will lead in the coming era of salvation. However, there are also passages that focus on God's rule in the future kingdom without mentioning the Messiah. Routledge cites Sigmund Moinkel's idea that Israel's future hope had both a religious aspect, focusing on God's rule, and a political aspect, repeating the restoration of the Davidic monarchy. For example, Isaiah 11, 1 9, set against a political crisis, focuses on the Davidic king, while Isaiah 65, 25, which talks about a new creation, does not mention the Messiah. Routledge contends that the context in which these passages are set influences their focus. Older traditions also play a role in how the kingdom is depicted. In some instances, Zion in the future kingdom is seen as the successor of Sinai, making it more appropriate to focus on Yahweh rather than the Messiah. Additionally, Rutledge underlines that the Messiah will fulfill the kingly ideal and will be different from all other kings of Israel or Judah. However, his role will be similar to that of past kings in that he will exercise authority on behalf of God. In the coming age, both God and the Messiah will be described as kings, with the Messiah presiding over the administration of judgment and salvation. However, Routledge notes that the role of the Messiah is not as prominent in the OT's future hope as is commonly thought. The main focus remains on God coming to save and reign over his people. Next, Routledge explores the figure as presented in Daniel 7.13, 
Contrasting it with the portrayal of world empires as beasts, Routledge suggests that the imagery likely originates from ancient Near Eastern mythology, specifically drawing parallels with the Canaanite myth, Baal and the Sea. In this myth, the sea god Yam challenges the gods led by El, who resembles Daniel's Ancient of Days. Baal, the rider on the clouds, is promised an eternal kingdom after defeating Yam. Routledge posits that the Son of Man in Daniel is a heavenly being, closely linked with Yahweh, serving as his representative. The figure's role in defeating the sea monster is not explicit, but is inferred from mythological parallels and other Old Testament passages where Yahweh brings judgment and or deliverance. The interpretation of the vision later replaces the Son of Man with the saints of the Most High suggesting that the figure may symbolize God's people or serve as their heavenly representative, securing their release from oppression and granting them a role in God's kingdom. The Son of Man is distinct from the Davidic Messiah who is typically portrayed as having an earthly origin. However, Rutledge notes that both figures share key similarities. They represent God, are associated with the inauguration of God's kingdom, and are granted eternal and universal dominion. Therefore, despite their different origins and roles in Israel's eschatological hope, Rutledge concludes that there is a correspondence between the two figures, both of which find fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Also, the concept of the servant of the Lord in Isaiah 40.55 is a complex and debated topic. These passages, known as the servant songs, have been interpreted in various ways. Some scholars debate that the servant refers collectively to Israel, as both Israel and the servant are called by God for a mission and will undergo suffering and restoration. However, the servant also appears to be an individual distinct from the nation of Israel, embodying what Israel was meant to be. Another interpretation posits that the servant could be the prophet Isaiah himself, as indicated in the New Testament, Acts 8.34. Prophets in Isaiah are often referred to as God's servants, and the servant speaks in the first person in these songs. Moreover, the servant has been linked to other prophetic figures like Jeremiah and Moses. In the New Testament, the servant is identified with Jesus Christ. This view suggests that the servant is a messianic figure fulfilling roles both as a king and a servant for Israel. The servant's characteristics closely align with the messianic king described in Isaiah 11. Some scholars dispute that the servant could be a composite figure, drawing from various characters like Jeremiah, Moses, and even the nation of Israel. Furthermore, Routledge discusses how the role of the servant has implications for the church. Initially, the calling of being God's servant belonged to Israel, but they failed to fulfill it. The role then passed to the prophet, and ultimately to Jesus Christ, who embodies the ultimate vision of the servant. Christians see this role as continuing through the church, fulfilling God's purposes initiated with Israel and focused through Jesus Christ. The servant songs, therefore, can be seen as pointing towards their ultimate fulfillment in Christ, while also possibly being autobiographical for the writer. They may draw from various figures in the nation of Israel, making the servant a composite character that serves multiple interpretive and theological functions. In addition, Rutledge focuses on the function or role that the servant plays in Israel's divine mission, rather than the servant's identity. According to Routledge, the servant is appointed by God to bring restoration and renewal to Israel, enabling the nation to fulfill its divine purpose of revealing God's glory to the world. This perspective allows for a more flexible interpretation of the servant passages in Isaiah, as it does not tie the understanding strictly to identifying who the servant is. While Rutledge acknowledges that the role of the servant finds its ultimate fulfillment in Christ, he suggests that the figure of the servant could be a composite, incorporating all individuals who assist Israel in achieving its divine task. This approach underscores the importance of the role itself, rather than fixating on the identity of the one who fulfills it. Further, Rutledge emphasizes the idea that the servant's mission is accomplished through suffering. The servant faces various forms of opposition, including indifference, hostility, and persecution. Despite these challenges, the servant remains steadfast and faithful, trusting in God for vindication. 
The fourth servant song, Isaiah 52, 13, 53, 12, is particularly noteworthy as it outlines the servant's journey from rejection and humiliation to exaltation, revealing that his suffering is not for his own sins, but as a ransom for others. This suffering enables the forgiveness and renewal necessary for Israel to fulfill its role as God's servant. Besides, Rutledge explores the concept of a suffering Messiah in Zechariah, particularly in the imagery of the Good Shepherd who is struck, causing the sheep to scatter. This shepherd is likely a future Davidic figure, who will face rejection and affliction to renew the covenant relationship between God and His people. Additionally, Zechariah mentions the people mourning over the one they have pierced, which may be another reference to a suffering Davidic Messiah whose death brings about cleansing from sin. Overall, Routledge argues that the theme of a suffering servant or leader is central to the understanding of the mission and identity of the Messiah in the Hebrew Bible. Next, Routledge explores the multifaceted concept of the Messiah in the Old Testament and its evolution over time. The OT primarily portrays the Messiah as a human figure linked to the Davidic monarchy, chosen and equipped by God. However, some passages hint at the Messiah's divinity, such as Psalms 45.6 and Isaiah 9.6. The Son of Man in Daniel 7.13.14 also suggests a more heavenly figure. Rutledge notes that later Judaism developed two divergent views of the Messiah. One view focused on a this-worldly Davidic king who would bring national and political restoration. The other envisioned a transcendent figure associated with a new heavenly order. Over time, these two views merged, resulting in a Messiah that was both earthly and heavenly, historical and transcendental. This led to the idea of a temporary earthly messianic kingdom. For example, in 2 Esdras, the Messiah is described as a mortal king who will reign for 400 years before dying. Later texts also describe the Messiah as a pre-existent figure who will deliver God's people. Routledge suggests that these merged views might have been limited to specific apocalyptic circles. The general population, especially during challenging times, likely leaned towards the idea of a human Messiah who would bring national recovery. This view was predominant at the time of Jesus, who was welcomed as a human deliverer. However, Jesus also uniquely fulfilled other messianic expectations, including the role of a suffering servant. Overall, the concept of the Messiah in the OT and intertestamental period is complex, encompassing human and divine, mortal and transcendent aspects, as well as roles of king, priest, and possibly prophet. Also, Rutledge explores the features of Old Testament apocalyptic literature, which emerged during a period of disappointment and frustration for Israel. Despite the return from exile, the nation's problems persisted and the prophesied salvation remained elusive. Apocalyptic literature offered hope by envisioning a future where God would triumph over evil beyond the scope of current historical events. The term apocalypse means unveiling, and these writings claim to have received revelations directly from God, often through visions. Moreover, they share similarities with earlier prophetic literature, particularly the works of Ezekiel and Zechariah, which contain visions and prophecies about the ultimate triumph of good over evil. However, unlike prophets who were concerned with the present and aimed to shape the nation's history, apocalyptic writers were more focused on a future new world order. They were pessimistic about the current world, dominated by evil powers, and looked forward to God's imminent reign of righteousness. Furthermore, apocalyptic literature introduced a deterministic view of world events, accentuating God's transcendence and the widening gap between God and humanity, often mediated by angels. These works are generally pseudonymous, attributed to significant figures from Israel's past. Apocalyptic writers saw history as a unified narrative under God's control, moving towards a predetermined goal. Even in the face of persecution and despair, they maintained that God was in control and that the rise and fall of empires were part of His divine plan. This perspective offered a framework to make sense of history and provided hope for a future where God's righteousness would prevail. In addition, Routledge's interpretation of the book of Daniel affirms its unique status as the only true apocalypse in the Old Testament. 
He notes that many scholars date the book to around 165 BC rather than the 6th century BC due to linguistic features and the detailed account of events leading up to the time of Antiochus Epiphanes. Routledge identifies the central theme of the book as God's sovereignty over human affairs and history. This theme is evident in both the narrative and visionary sections of the book. In the narrative part, chapters 1, 6, God's authority is demonstrated through the preservation of Daniel and his friends in the Babylonian and Persian courts, as well as through divine judgments on rulers like Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar. In the visionary part, chapters 7, 12, Daniel's visions reveal God's control over empires and historical events. For example, the vision of the four beasts in chapter 7 represents four empires, but concludes with God's ultimate victory. Chapter 8 describes the defeat of the Medo-Persian Empire by the Greeks and the rise of Antiochus Epiphanes, who persecutes the Jews. Chapter 9 focuses on the restoration of Jerusalem and the coming of the Anointed One. Further, Rutledge discusses the book's intricate relationship with history and prophecy. While the visions offer a detailed roadmap of historical events, they also suggest that these events are steps toward the ultimate establishment of God's kingdom. Even though there may be some contingency in human history, as indicated by the delayed arrival of a heavenly messenger in chapter 10, Routledge contends that this too is under divine control. Overall, the book of Daniel presents a worldview where God's authority is paramount, guiding history toward his ultimate victory. Besides, in Rutledge's discussion on death and the afterlife, he explores the Old Testament's perspective on these topics. According to Rutledge, death is primarily seen as a consequence of sin, citing various biblical passages like Genesis 2.17 and Ezekiel 18.20. The Old Testament generally portrays death in a negative light, as something hostile and unwelcome. However, it is also considered inevitable and natural, especially when it comes at the end of a long and fulfilled life. Figures like Abraham, Gideon, and David are said to have died at a good old age, contrasting with premature or violent deaths, which are seen as unnatural and unwelcome. Additionally, Rutledge dives into the Old Testament's nascent views on life after death. He notes that even in early times there was a belief that the dead survived in some form. This is evidenced by the importance attached to burial rites and the desire to be buried close to family members, suggesting a belief in some form of continued fellowship beyond the grave. Routledge asserts that similar beliefs existed in other ancient cultures like Egypt, Babylon, and Ugarit, where the dead were thought to have the ability to influence the living. In these cultures, elaborate provisions were made for the comfort and sustenance of the deceased. Also, the Old Testament hints at practices that suggest a belief in life after death among the Israelites. For instance, Saul consulted a medium to contact Samuel, and laws were enacted to forbid such consultations, indicating that the practice was common. Overall, Routledge's discussion highlights the Old Testament's complex and evolving views on death and the afterlife, which are rooted in the broader cultural and religious contexts of the time. Moreover, in the Old Testament, Sheol is often depicted as a shadowy, vague underworld where individuals go after death. It is considered to be located in the lowest parts of the earth and is frequently contrasted with heaven. The OT does not suggest a separation of soul and body at death. Rather, the term neeps refers to the whole person. In Sheol, this whole person exists as a shadowy representation, lacking vitality and separated from God. The inhabitants of Sheol are described as shades rather than souls. They are unable to worship God and are characterized by their weakness. For example, Isaiah 14, 9-11 describes the entry of the fallen king of Babylon into Sheol, indicating his weakness. Furthermore, Sheol is described as a place devoid of reward, knowledge, or wisdom, and from which there is no return. However, some scholars question the traditional understanding of Sheol as a universal destination for all the dead. Philip Johnston suggests that Sheol is mostly reserved for those under divine judgment, and that texts like Psalm 1610 hint at a form of continued fellowship with God for the righteous after death. In addition, Levinson debates against the universality of Sheol, seeing it as a prolongation of an unfulfilled life, 
with the alternative being to die fulfilled through seeing descendants. Overall, the OT view of Sheol is complex, with some scholars suggesting that it may not be the final destination for all. Further, Routledge's discussion on the concept of afterlife in the Old Testament explores how the idea evolved over time. The OT contains instances of resuscitation, like in 1 Kings 17.22 and 2 Kings 4.32.35, but these are not considered general resurrections as the individuals are assumed to die again. Ezekiel 37, 1.10 talks about the dead coming to life, but this is symbolic of the revival of the nation of Israel, not individual resurrection. The clearest OT reference to personal resurrection is in Daniel 12, 2, which speaks of multitudes waking up from the dust of the earth to either everlasting life or contempt. The dating of Daniel suggests that the idea of personal resurrection was a relatively late development in OT theology. However, Routledge notes that this idea became more significant during times of persecution, possibly leading to a more focused discussion on the topic. Besides Isaiah 26:19 and Psalm 49, 15 hint at the concept of personal resurrection. Isaiah is set in the context of national restoration, but suggests a victory over death. Psalm 49.15 expresses hope that God will redeem the psalmist from Sheol, the realm of the dead. Rutledge cautions against imposing a linear development on these theological ideas, as they are based on divine revelation. The OT view of hope and resurrection is physical, maintaining the unity of the whole person. It is not merely a resuscitation but a renewal of life as it was before. While the OT does not fully develop the idea of life beyond the grave, it lays the groundwork for later Jewish and Christian beliefs, ultimately culminating in the resurrection of Jesus. Last but not least, Routledge discusses the evolution of the concept of resurrection in the intertestamental period, a time between the Old and New Testaments. This period saw a rise in apocalyptic literature which pointed out eschatology, the Day of Judgment, and the establishment of God's kingdom on earth. Routledge suggests that the increased focus on these themes likely led to questions about the fate of the righteous who had already died especially those who had suffered martyrdom. Different Jewish sects and texts from this period offer varying views on resurrection. The Sadducees, for example, did not believe in it. Some texts focus on the resurrection as a collective rebirth of the nation, while others reiterate individual resurrection. Concepts like Sheol, the Hebrew underworld, and the Greek idea of the immortality of the soul also appear. However, a core belief emerged that the righteous would be resurrected to enjoy life in God's kingdom, while the wicked would face judgment and punishment. Various intertestamental texts elaborate on these ideas. The Psalms of Solomon speak of the righteous rising to eternal life. One Enoch describes different compartments in Sheol for the righteous and wicked, awaiting the day of judgment. Another division found in the literature is between Gehenna, a place of eternal fire, and paradise, the eternal home of the righteous. Also, Routledge notes that Jesus' parable of the rich man and Lazarus reflects some of these intertestamental views. The parable repeats the separation between the righteous and the wicked, and suggests that their eternal destinies are based on their earthly actions. The concept of resurrection had thus evolved significantly by the time of the New Testament, incorporating various perspectives, but centering on the vindication of the righteous and the judgment of the wicked. In conclusion, Rotledge's comprehensive work digs into the spiritual and theological dimensions of ancient Israel, focusing on the interplay of sin, judgment, and hope. He disputes that despite Israel's sinfulness and disobedience, there was an enduring belief in their future restoration under God's kingdom. This faith was rooted in the teachings of pre-exilic prophets who saw divine judgment as a catalyst for future blessings and spiritual growth. The experience of exile was pivotal, serving both as a divine judgment and an opportunity for renewal. Moreover, Rutledge explores the Deuteronomistic history principle, evident in books like Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings, this principle posits that obedience to God leads to blessings, while disobedience results in defeat and exile.
It serves as a theological lens to interpret Israel's history, including its exile and defeat in 722, 721 BC, and 587 BC. Furthermore, the principle also underlines God's patience, as seen in instances like the delayed punishment of Solomon's idolatry. In addition, the work examines the messages of pre-exilic prophets like Amos, Hosea, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, who warned of impending judgment due to social and religious sins. These prophets challenged Israel's sense of special status and warned that the day of the Lord would be a day of judgment, not triumph. Routledge likens God's relationship with Israel to a marriage, underscoring the covenantal obligations that Israel failed to meet. Further, Routledge examines the prophetic writings, arguing that the themes of judgment and hope were integral to these texts. He sees the exile as a theological necessity, a form of death that would lead to Israel's rebirth. The prophetic writings anticipate a new covenant, fulfilling ancient promises after passing through judgment. Besides, the concept of the remnant is explored, referring to the faithful minority who survived divine judgment and returned to God. Despite the disappointments of the post-exilic period, the idea of a faithful remnant became a future hope. Additionally, Routledge discusses the tension between the Sinaitic and Davidic covenants, emphasizing that Jeremiah foresaw a new and eternal covenant that would bridge divine judgment and God's unwavering promises. Also, the new covenant, as described by Jeremiah, is characterized by an internal law written on the hearts of the people, promising a transformation leading to obedience. This covenant negates human mediation, allowing direct access to God and ensures divine forgiveness for past sins. Moreover, Routledge addresses Old Testament eschatology, suggesting a broader definition that includes all elements related to a new world system. He identifies key themes like the Day of the Lord, the struggle between chaos and order, chaoskampf, and Davidic traditions as shaping its evolution. The Day of the Lord is seen as an ultimate victory of God, while chaoskampf represents God's triumph over chaos, promising a new creation. The Zion tradition, linked to Jerusalem, offers national hope, accentuating God's protection and the role of the Davidic king. Furthermore, Routledge explores the complex theological landscape of the Old Testament, focusing on themes like salvation, spiritual rebirth, the kingdom of God, and messianic expectations. He discusses how the prophets, particularly Deutero-Isaiah, saw Israel's exile as a purifying event that would lead to both a physical and spiritual rebirth for the nation. This rebirth is likened to a second exodus and extends to the creation of new heavens and a new earth marking a new chapter in Israel's relationship with God. In addition, Routledge explores the concept of the kingdom of God, affirming its future establishment characterized by God's victory over his enemies and the restoration of Israel, particularly Jerusalem. The kingdom is envisioned as a return to a state of paradise similar to the Garden of Eden, with Jerusalem as its center. The Davidic Messiah is expected to rule this kingdom, fulfilling the eternal dynastic promise made to King David. Further, the OT's depiction of God's kingdom is described in earthly terms, focusing on the restoration of Israel both politically and spiritually. While some interpret these visions as symbolic, others associate them with Christ's millennial reign. Routledge contends that the OT does not contain a two-phase salvation concept, but portrays God's kingdom as eternal. Besides, Routledge probes into the messianic expectation, noting that the term Messiah is not explicitly used in the OT to refer to an eschatological figure. He explores various viewpoints, concluding that messianic expectations may have grown in response to political failure. The Davidic line's link to the Messiah remains a prominent theme, reinforcing the idea of a predicted ideal ruler who would uphold the values and glory of King David's reign. Additionally, in his interpretation of Isaiah and the Royal Psalms, Routledge identifies passages that hint at a future ideal ruler descended from David. These texts evoke an evolving concept of leadership that surpasses ordinary human rule embodying a potent blend of prophetic hope and longing for a divine ruler. Additionally, Routledge discusses the figure of the servant of the Lord in Isaiah 40.55, a complex and debated topic. 
He suggests that the servant could be a composite figure, drawing from various characters like Jeremiah, Moses, and even the nation of Israel. The servant's mission is accomplished through suffering, enabling the forgiveness and renewal necessary for Israel to fulfill its role as God's servant. Also, Rutledge explores the figure presented in Daniel 7.13, contrasting it with the portrayal of world empires as beasts. He suggests that the Son of Man in Daniel is a heavenly being, closely linked with Yahweh, serving as his representative. Despite their different origins and roles, both the Son of Man and the Davidic Messiah share key similarities and both find fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Moreover, Rutledge asserts that Israel's future hope in the OT had both a religious aspect, focusing on God's rule, and a political aspect, highlighting the restoration of the Davidic monarchy. He debates that the role of the Messiah is not as prominent in the OT's future hope as is commonly thought. The main focus remains on God coming to save and reign over his people. Furthermore, Rutledge's comprehensive exploration of Old Testament theology covers a range of topics, from the concept of the Messiah to apocalyptic literature, death, afterlife, and the book of Daniel. In addition, starting with the Messiah, Rutledge observes that the OT primarily portrays this figure as a human linked to the Davidic monarchy. However, there are hints at the Messiah's divinity, such as in Psalms 45, 6 and Isaiah 9, 6. Over time, Judaism developed two divergent views, one of a worldly Davidic king and another of a heavenly figure. These views eventually merged, leading to a complex messianic concept that was both earthly and heavenly. This was the predominant view at the time of Jesus, who was seen as a human deliverer, but also fulfilled other messianic roles, including that of a suffering servant. Further, Routledge investigates Old Testament apocalyptic literature, which emerged during a period of disappointment for Israel. These writings offered hope by envisioning a future where God would triumph over evil. Unlike prophets who were concerned with the present, apocalyptic writers focused on a future new world order. They introduced a deterministic view of world events indicating God's control over history, even in the face of persecution and despair. Besides, in his interpretation of the book of Daniel, Rutledge identifies its central theme as God's sovereignty over human affairs and history. He notes that many scholars date the book to around 165 BC rather than the 6th century BC due to linguistic features and the detailed account of events leading up to the time of Antiochus Epiphanes. The book presents a worldview where God's authority is paramount, guiding history toward his ultimate victory. Additionally, on the topic of death and the afterlife, Rutledge states that the OT primarily views death as a consequence of sin and generally portrays it in a negative light. However, it also considers death inevitable and natural when it comes at the end of a long and fulfilled life. The OT contains nascent views on life after death, evidenced by burial rites and laws forbidding consultations with mediums. Also, regarding Sheol, the OT depicts it as a shadowy underworld where individuals go after death. Some scholars question the traditional understanding of Sheol as a universal destination for all the dead, suggesting that it may be reserved for those under divine judgment. Lastly, Rutledge discusses the evolution of the concept of resurrection in the intertestamental period. This time saw a rise in apocalyptic literature, which likely led to questions about the fate of the righteous who had already died. Different Jewish sects and texts offer varying views on resurrection, but a core belief emerged that the righteous would be resurrected to enjoy life in God's kingdom, while the wicked would face judgment.